Your brain health matters. Welcome to the Let's Talk Brain Health podcast. Join the conversation on brain health and wellness with your expert hosts, Dr. Crystal Culler and Dr. Jonathan Arts, and respected guests. Discover ways to take charge of your total brain health, mind, body, spirit. Tune in to the latest brain care news, science-based tips, and practical strategies to build a better brain and live a brain-healthy lifestyle. By prioritizing your brain health, you are taking an important step towards living a happier, healthier life. Let's continue our brain care journey together with our next guest. I'd like to introduce Ian Robertson, a clinical psychologist and leading researcher on how individuals can harness the mind's attention systems. Dr. Robertson serves as co-leader of the Brain Health Project, a landmark scientific study designed to define, measure, and improve brain health and performance across the lifespan. For over four decades, his research focused on the neuropsychology of brain rehabilitation and attention. He has more than 200 published books and articles in this field. His research and writings focus on ways to maximize the brain's capacity to reshape itself and give every person a sense of control over their emotions and cognitive function. In addition to his research endeavors, Dr. Robertson has played a pivotal role in mentoring and shaping the career of countless students, professionals, and fellows as the founding co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute an emeritus professor at Trinity College Dublin, where he previously founded the Institute of Neuroscience. Dr. Robertson's influence extends far beyond the academic realm as he actively engages with the public through various media outlets, offering valuable insights on the complexities of the human mind. His contributions have earned him recognition and respect from peers and students worldwide, solidifying his legacy as a luminary in the field of psychology and neuroscience. Welcome, Professor Robertson, to the Let's Talk Brain Health podcast. I am so excited to have you here with us, especially as a fellow of the Global Brain Health Institute, who's had the opportunity to learn from you. Is there anything else about your background you'd like to share with our audience today? We usually underestimate the potential control we have over our own brains and uh, how we use our attention is a huge factor in that, and that's what I've studied for 40 years, and that's what still gets me up in the morning as a, a fantastic opportunity for every individual to feel more in control. And if you feel more in control of your own attention, you'll be more in control of your own brain, and therefore you'll be more in control of your own health and your own emotions. And I guess that's what I feel evangelical about, is making people feel more in control of these things. One of our main goals of this podcast was to be a public health effort and awareness around brain health and to really emphasize the amount of influence we can have across various domains of our health and well-being. So I'm excited to dive in with you today on stress, mainly because stress has changed for a lot of us over the past couple years, collectively living through a pandemic and now the after effects on our health and our well-being. Would you mind starting the conversation today and telling us what is stress and the impact on our brain? Stress is an experience, it's a perception that the demands being made on you by the environment exceed your ability to cope with them. And the resulting emotion is anxiety. And anxiety in the short term is a useful emotion that serves to 
help us escape from threat. But unfortunately, or fortunately, because of our evolved brains, the frontal lobes of our brains allow us to extend the threat almost infinitely in the past and future by worry and anticipation. So the very things that make us human are being able to project into the future and work towards future goals is also the apparatus that will be anxious a lot of the time or all of the time because we're constantly feeling under threat. So, and when our anxiety is chronic and sustained like this, it has a number of effects on our bodies because it generates the hormone cortisol, which again, in the short term is a useful hormone, but the long term can be toxic to various organs in our body and even our brain or, or our emotions and our thinking. Because when you're anxious, it's very hard to think clearly, partly because of the, the chemical changes in your brain that anxiety causes, but also because of the, the ruminations and the worries and the thoughts that leave little room for clear thinking about solving everyday life problems. And the third thing is on behavior. Across the world, and the studies have shown this, chronically anxious people do less of everything. They take less action. And if you do less stuff, then you don't get the benefit. Afghanistani poet Rumi in the 13th century outlined when he said, the road only appears with the first step. Often just taking action changes our perspective, allows us to meet someone or see something or think something or experience something that changes how things look to us. But if you're paralyzed or constantly in retreat from the world because of anxiety, you don't get that possibility of these experiences that can nurture you. That's the effects of chronic anxiety. But I'll finish off talking about, go back to stress, which is a perception. And the very same event can make me stressed, feel anxious, that makes another person feel angry, or a third person feel excited. So it's about the perception. And the great news here is, if we change the perception, we can change the anxiety, so that we have that opportunity to take control of our emotions. Dr. Robertson, your research has revealed the critical role of norepinephrine in brain plasticity and the development of cognitive reserve, suggesting yes. possible ways to mediate other variables, including education level, mental stimulation, novelty, social networks, and IQ. So could you provide us an overview of your research and its application to brain health? Thank you, John. So when I was talking about stress, I said this general arousal that happens, and we call that the fight or flight system. And part of the fight or flight system is the chemical messenger in the brain, the hormone norepinephrine, which has remarkable effects on the brain. When it isn't just the right level, it actually makes us smarter, makes our brains more plastic, makes us learn faster. But when there's too little, like sleepy is four o'clock in the morning, we don't think clearly. And if it's too much, like when we're stressed, that also muddies our thinking. So it's like many of the chemical messengers in the brain has this upside down U-shaped function. But as long as it's not too much or too little, it's a remarkable neurotransmitter because what it does is it makes our connections between brain cells establish themselves more quickly. That's neuroplasticity. And so it may also help clear some of the amyloid plaque in the brain that can accumulate for Alzheimer's disease. And it certainly makes the amyloid that is in all of our brains less toxic to brain cells. So whenever anything happens that is exciting, frightening, 
difficult or challenging, puzzling, our brain generates norepinephrine. And this is a part of a general preparation for action system. And it doesn't matter whether that action is running away in fear, fighting in anger, or celebrating in excitement. It's the same psychophysiological system. And so what we've suggested, and there's a lot of evidence accumulating to support this, is that the strange phenomenon whereby people who have higher levels of education have lower levels of dementia later in life, or people who have mentally stimulating activities or jobs of lower levels of dementia later in life, or people with dense social networks and very rich social connections also have less dementia. We call these that cluster of things cognitive reserve, a notion that there's some reserve that gives some protection to your brain against disease later in life. So what could cause this strange, strange relationship? Well, I've suggested that all of these activities, the mental stimulation, the social stimulation, the education, the, the engaging in challenging mental activities, they all cause your brain to generate norepinephrine. And norepinephrine has these nourishing, brain-enhancing, neuroplasticity-affording, and possibly, possibly disease-modifying qualities to it. And so I've suggested that this norepinephrine system is a critical biological mediator between these experiences we have in the world and the later pathology in the brain. Uh, and that's why it's so important as we get older to maintain mental challenge, social engagement, and a sense of purpose in life. That's excellent, Dr. Robertson. And uh, as a neurologist, I like to talk about the concept of cognitive reserve when I uh, discuss with patients ways that they can maintain their cognitive capacity. And interestingly, there's an organ called the amygdala. And I know you know about this well. And I was just curious if you could comment on this organ that to me doesn't get enough press about yes. press, meaning in the news, the media. We need to talk about the amygdala more and how norepinephrine, neuroplasticity, and the amygdala, or what's happening in the amygdala to promote stress and potentially uh, ways that we can make ourselves more resilient. Great question. The amygdala is really a critical part of the brain involved in generating emotional responses, particularly anxiety. And the interesting thing about the amygdala is it's fast wired to our sensory cortex. So if you suddenly find yourself jumping out of the path of a bus that nearly ran you over, that action of jumping away from the bus happens quicker than any conscious thought you could have. It's an emergency route between our sensory organs and the amygdala that triggers below our conscious awareness escape responses from threat. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have passed other genes down through the generations. It's a, a critical emergency escape system. So the thing is, if I have time to worry when I'm out in the street that a bus might come, maybe I, I develop a phobia because I've nearly been run over by a bus, then I start to trigger my amygdala, not from the outside actual bus coming, but from thoughts or images related to the bus. And when your amygdala activates, it activates the norepinephrine system, part of the fight or flight system, because that's the action, do something system, or freeze. But it also raises our pulse, all, all the sympathetic autonomic nervous system activities that are to do with taking action to escape or to cope with a threat. The more the amygdala gets activated, the bigger it becomes, actually grows in size and hyper-responsive. 
And that means that it can be triggered by all sorts of things. It puts us in a part of the reason we stay in a kind of constant state of edginess or anxiety. And that's not good for you, not good for your brain, not good for your body because of the cortisol that's also being generated to make your muscles move faster in response to these now imagined threats. But the good news is there's a number of things you can do with this incredible mental apparatus that can actually shrink the amygdala and reduce its dominance in our lives. For example, some mindfulness practices can actually dampen down amygdala activity. Even simple psychological practices like self-affirmation of values, that is going back and saying, well, what are my values? What do I stand for? And, and taking a little time just to write for a couple of minutes what you stand for and why these values are important to you. It's called self-affirmation. Even that slightly reduces amygdala activity. So the more we can exercise, particularly the frontal lobes of our brain, which can send inhibitory uh, signal down to the amygdala, the more we can gain a sense of control over our emotional, these lower level emotional functions. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Professor Robertson. I suspect many of us hear much more about the importance of mental stimulation for the brain, but really most things are with the brain and body is all things in balance and needing that side that promotes restfulness, relaxation, and much like you shared, calming down some systems that may have areas of hyperactivity like the amygdala in our brain and how we can leverage it to our advantage. I just want to give you an example of stimulation and stress combined. A couple of studies, one in Holland and one in Florida, looking at people in their 70s whose memory was failing a bit and who you would expect to see a memory decline over the next two years. But they then, both studies looked at whether any stressful events happened to these people over the, that two-year period. And what they found was that having moderately stressful events actually preserved the memory and stopped it declining over the two-year period. So for example, your spouse getting very ill with, say, cancer or a stroke, or having conflict with family or with neighbors, these not nice but moderately severe stressors seem to present them with challenges and problems to deal with these issues that actually cause their brain to probably generate more norepinephrine and push them up nearer this sweet spot that maintained by generating higher levels of a hormone, norepinephrine, that was otherwise probably at quite low levels because of maybe a very relatively unstimulating retired life. That's important research to hear about that really shows the application of science and how it plays out in our daily lives, especially in the performance of our memory or our brain health and wellness. A lot of your comments today really started to highlight finding that stress threshold. How do we find the right level of stress and challenge to use it to flourish? Do you have any suggestions for our audience to put that into action? I have two suggestions. One is learning to monitor yourself, whether you're in the, what I call the frazzle zone. So you every day you've got goals you have to achieve and things you have to do. And sometimes things get too much and you start to feel tense and anxious. And when you do that, you maybe don't perform well in various ways. And often we just try and work our way through these things. Maybe we have no choice. 
I think we should always have a shadow goal, I call it. You have the main goal you're trying to do, which may be care for your loved one. There's a shadow goal which says monitoring yourself for whether you're in the frazzle zone or not. If you're starting to feel frazzled, you must actually be dealing with that frazzle as your main goal, which is hard to do because it feels like you're abandoning the goal you should be doing. But actually, if you address these feelings, give yourself some time, do some slow breathing, give yourself a bit of a rest, a reward, five minutes of exercise, and then go back to your main goal, you will be actually delivering better on your main goal. So that's the frazzle zone suggestion. The second suggestion is, if you're confronted with a stressful situation, i.e. you feel the demands made on you, you exceed your ability to cope with them. Sometimes you can wake up in the morning trying to work out how you're going to solve these problems, deal with these challenges, and your mind is just going constantly, ruminating, trying to solve this problem. So sometimes what you have to do is you have to say, hold on a minute, there's a limit to how much I can solve problems in the external world. And maybe I'm in a hiding to nothing here, solving problems that are insolvable. So sometimes you have to change your goal from an external one to an internal one. Okay, I'm going to keep doing what I do. And my goal is to do this with emotional equanimity, to do this with a sense of internal quietness, with without that sense of stress. So maybe you have to have a difficult conversation with a relative and you're very anxious at the thought of what might be a conflict-creating conversation. And you're worrying how you're going to solve this problem. Well, maybe what you do is you change your goal to say, I'm going to have this conversation, but my aim is not to change the situation. My aim is to have this conversation without getting upset, without getting angry, without getting anxious, or at least to do it without the outward manifestations of these things. And that's an example of changing your goal from an external one to an internal one. And so the situation in the outside world may not be any different, but you've actually set a very important goal for yourself, which is to behave in a way that you haven't responded to provocation, or you haven't cried, or you haven't shouted, or you haven't got upset, but rather you have approached this with a rather Buddhist equanimity. And that can give you a tremendous sense of achievement, and that can activate the dopamine system of the brain, the reward network, and it gives you a sense of having done something in spite of adversity, in spite of anxiety. And that is a huge way of building confidence. And confidence is the great antidote to anxiety, just as anxiety is the great corrosive of confidence. You have shared with us quite a few practical tips that have some synergies among them, from breathing to adjusting our goals and affirmations. A few years ago, the mainstream media picked up on a lot of your research for a powerful phrase of saying, I feel excited rather than I feel anxious. Would you mind yeah. explaining how we can use that affirmational tool to label our situation or pivot our stress response for more optimal outcome? Uh, a few years ago, I was at home in the afternoon on my own and I started to have a tense stomach and my heart began beating and my palms were sweaty and I was breathing fast. What emotion was I having? And most people say, oh, anxiety or fear. And I said, no, I was excited because my country, Scotland, had beat England a game called rugby. So I was excited. So it's, here's a question. How is it I can have the same symptoms for two such different emotions as excitement and anxiety? And then the answer is these things we call anxiety, we call stress, are actually just our body preparing for action and our brain preparing for action. And they don't care what, whether that action is fighting, running away, or celebrating. And they only become a particular emotion by the context, essentially by the label we put on them. So this was a study by Alison Brooks who showed that getting people to do it in a stressful performance situation where you had to do mental arithmetic in front of a critical audience with your heart rate being portrayed on a screen, bang, boom, boom, boom. 
and you had to come up and do mental arithmetic orally and get told when you made mistakes. Very stressful situation. But they had two groups. One group, before they started, had to say out loud to themselves, I feel anxious, which of course was confirmed by the beating heart rate on the screen. But the other group had to change one word and just say, I feel excited. And that second group, their heart rate didn't change, but they performed better. They performed better on the task. They, did, they got more correct in the mental arithmetic. Why? Because they had that psychophysiological state, preparation for action. They had jujitsu from one emotion, anxiety into another excitement. And when you say you feel excited about something, you're changing your brain's orientation towards anticipating threat, to one of anticipating successful meeting of a challenge. And that's a very powerful way of reorienting yourself and dealing with difficult situations with a sense of, whoa, can I do this? You've engaged with the public through various media outlets. And what do you believe are the most important messages about the complexities of the human mind, behavior, or stress that you share with our broader audience? The single most important one, I think, is that you don't imprison yourself with a fixed theory about your abilities or your emotions. This is Carl Dweck's work in Stanford, this your theory about yourself. You have to accept the truth, the scientific truth, which is the human brain is characterized not by genetic inevitability, but rather by learning plasticity and flexibility. Even a person late in life with Alzheimer's disease has some neuroplasticity. And the second thing is, you can almost anything, any behavior can be partly or completely learned or unlearned. But learning, as we all know, is, is a slow process. Unlearning is even slower. It's an up and down. Some days you, you feel as if you've gone backward. And so if you have a fixed theory about your what makes you who you are and what makes your abilities, if you have a fixed theory rather than a proper, accurate neuroplasticity theory, the first time you, you go backwards or go hit the dip, you'll give up. People need to really accept that they are learning machines and their brains are shaped by what they do and what they think and what they experience. Well, these things are very, very hard to change. If you've had a particular emotional reaction 100,000 times in your lifetime, that's a huge amount of learning to unlearn. And it will take a long time and a lot of effort and practice to do so. But if you approach it in the right way, you will be able to gradually let go part of the way in learning. The second thing is decentering. That is, not realizing that our minds, our brains are hugely complex, that we are not our emotions, we are not our thoughts, <laughs> we are not our behaviors, that we have this capacity to watch ourselves thinking, watch ourselves responding, watch ourselves feeling. And that decentering is an immensely powerful, if you can get into that frame of mind, where rather than being caught up in the emotion or caught up in the rumination, rather you experience it, but you see it for what it is. Ah, there's a bit of, I'm thinking these thoughts again. Oh, oh, there it comes. There's the old anxiety coming on again. To the extent that you can decenter from these internal experiences, that will give you some sense of control. Sometimes just naming something gives you a sense of control. Thank you. And, and we're getting close to the end of this podcast. Could you... Tell us more about your work at the Brain Health Project and how it aims to improve brain health and performance across the lifespan. This is at the Center for Brain Health, University of Texas in Dallas, where I'm privileged to be part of the team running this, a very large project 
which aims to take 100,000 people from 18 to 100, follow them up over 10 years, doing complex brain imaging on 10% of them, and doing a brain health index on all of them yearly. They've already enrolled about 30,000 people. How this differs from other longitudinal studies is we are intervening as we go and not just measuring because we want the brain health index, which is an online assessment you do, which gives three components. What we call clarity, that is your quality of your thinking. Connection, that is your sense of connection to other people, but also to a connection, sense of purpose and emotional balance. But what we do is we get people to take a brain health index, but rather than seeing that as a kind of neurological diagnosis, it's conveyed more as a target to improve. More like what you would get an assessment in the gym for your physical fitness. You go, don't go to the gym to say, oh, your muscles are X and that's you too bad. Unfortunately, that's what we tend to do with our brain. Rather, we say, well, look, your clarity could do with a bit of improving. And so they speak to a coach after they've done the brain health index, who then recommends to them some activities. We have an online suite of activities ranging from something called smart training to address clarity of thinking, emotional stress management training, sleep, diet, and then we then reassess them yearly with a view to them improving their brain health index. And this is one way of shaking people out of a static view of their abilities. We already published a couple of papers on this and finding that indeed people generally manage to improve on their brain health index, and we're getting some very interesting brain imaging correlates of these improvements. Look up the Brain Health Project, University of Texas at Dallas. We'd love to have people enrolling for this. It's, there's no cost. It's free. Thank you so much for sharing that exciting research project. I will be sure to include that in the show notes for our listeners today. I have the final questions for you, Professor Robertson. I'd like to ask, what is one book that shifted your thinking or learning on the brain? It's not a book so much as the work of Michael Marcini in the University of California, San Francisco. I was influenced before I read his book called Softwired. He did the fundamental research that broke the myth that I taught in my early years of my career, that the brain is not a muscle, that brain cells only die. The whole notion of the fixity of the brain as opposed to the rest of the body his research turned that in his head. He's my hero in terms of shaping my view of the human brain. Thank you for curating a list of books that have helped influence experts. I have a bit of a personal question. As an expert in brain health, what's your one non-negotiable for your own brain care? Sleep. Very hard to keep your brain healthy without good sleep. Appreciate you sharing that. And I want to make sure you have the final word. Is there any last key message you'd like to leave with our listeners about what they should know for stress in their brain? You are not your stress. It's okay to be anxious. Don't be frightened of fear. Don't be anxious about anxiety. Try and watch yourself feeling the anxiety and realize if you do stuff in spite of feeling anxious, that's a huge source of confidence. By understanding how stress affects our brains, we gain the tools to control our emotional and cognitive well-being. Dr. Ian Robertson, thank you so much for letting us pick your brilliant brain on the Let's Talk Brain Health podcast. Thank you for investing in your personal brain care by listening to this episode. We hope Let's Talk Brain Health has provided new insights 
inspiration, and action steps to support your personal brain health journey. We encourage you to continue learning about brain health science and hope you will share our podcast with others. We look forward to exploring more topics related to brain health in future episodes. Email podcast at virtualbrainhealthcenter.com with questions or topics of interest. We are here for you. Until next time, may you give your brain the care it deserves. Make your brain health a priority.